It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. We do have some Blue Angel modifications. Specifically, one of the most notable ones is that we have a smoke system. We can turn on that smoke on and off, and that is replaced, you know, where we'd have normally have a gun inside the nose. So that's actually a smoke tank for us now. We also have a stick spring. And what that does is it basically helps dampen out any oscillations that we might put inside the aircraft. Navy Commander Brian Kesslering joined the Navy's Blue Angels flight demonstration team in September 2019. He leads the team's six FAA Hornets through high-precision maneuvers before millions of breathless spectators every year. I'm former astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winifred. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Speaking of adrenaline, we're delighted to have Zoa Energy as this episode's sponsor. We caught up with Brian in Pensacola, Florida, just before the kickoff of the team's 2021 season. Boss Kesslering, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. We'd like to give our listeners a little bit about your background and where you came from. I know you grew up in North Dakota where you were exposed to aircraft and airplanes when you were younger, but what caused you to want to become a naval aviator? Well, first, thanks for having me on. It's an absolute honor to be here and to have a chance to talk with uh, both of you today. With that, to kind of get back to your question, like any uh, young guy in the 80s growing up in an agricultural uh, state like North Dakota, I think a lot of uh, influence in aviation has to do with crop dusters, no doubt about it. We, you know, seeing them zip around and uh, all over the fields and over power lines, under power lines at times. And then also we had a guard unit uh, that was a F-16 unit called the Happy Hooligans at the time that uh, was very motivating to watch and see those uh, aircraft. My dad uh, spent a couple years in the Navy and uh, always talked to me about aviation. He said the best naval aviators uh, or best aviators for, for that matter are in the in the Navy. And the first time I ever had a chance to see him was going to the Fargo Air Show back in 1986. And I can still remember, uh, you know, back in June before internet and all these things in June 1986 and watching these, you know, these six blue and gold spaceships invade my hometown of Fargo, North Dakota called the Blue Angels. And at that time, it was led by uh, Captain uh, Gil Rood, uh, another North Dakota native. And I can remember the announcer ad-libbing and saying, from the right, North Dakota's very own. And I, as a nine-year-old, I perked up my ears and go, what, somebody from North Dakota could potentially do that? And I remember seeing uh, Fat Albert and all the crew chiefs and the maintainers and watching that professionalism that they uh, exuded each and every day. And that was really the catalyst for not only to fly, but also to maybe have that chance to, to join that team, the Navy and Marine Corps team. I guess that's, uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell, at least the genesis of my dream to fly. Did it ever dawn on you as you were starting on this journey that you might actually one day lead the Blue Angels or even be a member? It never did, sir. I'll tell you, I mean, I was uh, happier than could be flying uh, gray jets off the pointy end of an aircraft carrier. And uh, to have the ability to go back to that is an honor uh, as well for me. But as I got done with my commanding officer tour, I just looked at it. I had a couple of friends who had uh, been on the Blue Angels and talked to me about it. And I thought of it as one, I thought it'd be a neat job to do, to be able to work with uh, professionals that influenced me so profoundly at such a young age, uh, but to also to be able to give back. And I think, 
you know, as you get older, especially in the, you know, in the Navy and I guess as you know, getting a middle-aged man, you start thinking about what are ways, given my capabilities, that I can give back and potentially influence in a good way those around me. And to have an influence uh, like the Blue Angels had on me was something that was intriguing for me. And uh, lucky enough for me, they picked my application. I'm guessing they probably picked the wrong one in the pile, but I'll take it. I'm still here and uh, had the ability to come on and join this fine team. You know, it's funny. Every one of us that gets chosen for astronaut, we have that same thought. It's like, are they sure? They which, are they sure? Yeah. So I want to go back to the the nine year old that that had that dream watching the air show. Did you take pilot lessons as a as a high school person, a high school student? Did you take training in the Navy? What sort of steps did you have to go through to get to that highest level where you are now as the lead of the Blue Angels? Well, I'll tell you, man, I, I think one of the things that uh, it was just a passion. And I go back to even being six or seven years old, and I was just had some passion that was uh, about seeing these aircraft and wanting to be in them. Uh, I never had a chance to actually fly them until I got to college and uh, did some work study programs and some work at night to be able to pay for some uh, flight lessons over a couple of years to get my private pilot's license. And that was really right when I started flying. But as a kid growing up, I was just interested. You know, you read some, some pilot magazines and flying and some of those those magazines that are aviation centric and just nothing more than you know building some model airplanes or watching something that comes across on the TV or renting a VHS video from the video store back in the day and seeing what this aviation thing was all about so uh, boss tell us uh, a little bit about how a pilot actually becomes a blue angel you know you got to go out to the fleet develop a reputation but there's quite a process there I know it's different for team members and the boss but give us a sense for what it takes to get onto the team yes sir it's uh you know first and foremost we're from the fleet and we're going back to the fleet as you well know we you know in our careers for a boss to be picked up here at about the right at about the 18 to 20 year mark in your career the black and white requirement is that you've led a tactical uh, squadron and you have over 3,000 hours in tactical aircraft and that's about it and then from there in the boss hiring process a lot of it's just interviews and certainly reputation but ultimately what it comes down to is just interviewing with uh, a lot of former bosses and leadership in the Navy to see if uh, one you have the aptitude flying wise, but perhaps more importantly, to be able to come in here and to uh, synchronize well with this high functioning team. For other teammates or support officers and our other pilots, it's a very similar process. Now they join the team at about, now on the officer side, at about probably the, somewhere between the six to 10 year mark, depending on exactly what position they're filling. For the aviators, they're required to have about uh, 1,250 hours of uh, tactical jet experience, uh, similar hours for C-130 uh, pilots flying out uh, fat Albert, as we like to call our C-130J. And uh, throughout that process, we look at what their qualifications were in the fleet. We talk to all the folks as points of reference. We see how they filled out their application, how they answered uh, basic questions, how they viewed the world, how they viewed the career, the Navy, the Marine Corps, and how they view working on a, on a team. And ultimately, what it comes down to, like any other thing out there in the, in the Navy and Marine Corps, is they take a look at uh, and try to take the best and most fully qualified for the team. And uh, on top of that, we have to make sure that they're great you know, not only great individuals and great individual officers and enlisted sailors and Marines, but great teammates. Well, that's a key uh, thing for us. Two key traits that I think if you're going to, you take out the flying expertise or the expertise for any of our support roles, key traits is we got to be able to trust you. 
and attitude of absolute humility. This sounds remarkably similar <laughs> to the process that I went through, especially being able to be a part of a team. And, you know, I suppose you guys have some basic training that you put everyone through to integrate them into the bigger team, whether it's for the, the aviators or the ground support. And is there sort of a probationary period there or do they jump right in? There is, and it slightly depends on exactly what position you're filling, of course, and what exact role you have on the team. We call it our newbie phase, and I'll give you an example of four officers. They'll be selected, you know, your average officer is selected about early July. Uh, they have about a, a couple months to report down here, and the officers, as an example, we pick up this year will come down and report basically the first week of September. And for two to two and a half months during that newbie phase, they are just being indoctrinated in how our organization works. They're not looking particularly flying or taking over a job. They're literally just sitting back and they're observing how this machine of the Blue Angels uh, works. Once they, what we call drop a salute or the change of command or the end of the season, because we end each of our flight demonstrations with a team salute for the pilots. At the end of that demonstration, they are now the team members who are enter the next phase. And from pretty much that first week of November until the middle of March, our first opportunity for an air show, we go through a pretty rigorous training cycle. It starts out with, you know, the very basics. By mid-March, we're executing an air show uh, in and up to not only the, the safety standards that we have at this team, but also the level of excellence that we've come to expect from the Blue Angels in the last 75 years. Wow. So, you know, one of the things that I think we have is a singular advantage, not only in naval aviation, but in tactical jet aviation and the U.S. military writ large is, is that we're very self-critical. We have very candid briefs and debriefs. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, you're out in El Centro, you're sort of working your way up, walk before you run and, and how you go about that process. So I'm glad you touched on that. And that is, to me, that is, you know, strike fighter or naval aviation in a nutshell is that, that environment of critical self-assessment. And that is the absolute key. It's it. I, you know, I think for, you know, the critical self-assessment, I think we start out and start give just to give an overview of our flight, you know, starting out. We go out to El Centro and we start our brief in the morning. We get in the spaces about 545. We take all the learning points that we took from the last day and we start. That is our starting point for our flight that day. We're going to brief them. We all have individual learning points and learning points that we have as a group. We take that into our flight. We execute that flight for about an hour and then we come back down and we just dissect it and rip it apart for the next hour, an hour and a half. I think one of the cool things about this organization is also that, uh, you know, there is no, there's no pride. There's no, you know, there's no ego rather, not necessarily pride, but there's no ego in the debrief where the person who's critiquing me as the most senior aviator in the room is a, a couple of lieutenants when I show up and they're telling me, Hey, you did this wrong, boss. You did this wrong. And move your wings here. This wasn't uh, synced up the way it should be. And that's that's the environment that we operate in. And we have to environment uh, to operate in that particular way. In this environment, with the tolerances are are so tight. After this short break, we'll talk to Brian about the teamwork required to fly the complex maneuvers the Blue Angels regularly perform while making it all look easy. What if you could get energy, immunity, and strength in one sip? Well, now you can. Zoa is the fastest growing energy drink on the market, created by Dwayne The Rock Johnson to fuel risk takers and world changers like you. Zoa is packed with superfoods like Kamu Kamu and Acerola cherries that provide multiple B vitamins and 100% vitamin C, 
Plus, Zoa has just the right kick of caffeine from green tea and green coffee in five amazing flavors. Look for it on Amazon, at your favorite retailer, or order online at zoaenergy.com. That's Z-O-A energy.com. You know, other than those kinds of intense briefing and, you know, that honesty and trust you guys develop, what are other ways? You know, that clearly that's a way to manage risk and, and make sure you continue on the path of a learning organization so you get better and better. What are some of the other ways that you guys are managing the risk? I mean, it's kind of risky what you're doing, flying so many airplanes at, you know, such high speeds so close together. Yeah, you know, we talk about is is un, you know it's unforgiving. You know, uh, it's an unforgiving business, and we mitigate risk by having a really stair step approach to how we approach every flight. And we don't get to our lowest altitudes or our what we call our closest sets, the closest that we'll fly our aircraft to together until the very end of the season. And so we get to a level that we first. Our first goal is to achieve a level of safety in any maneuver before we do it, before we take it to the next level. So we're not going to even start doing a maneuver until we figure out that at a certain spacing away from each other, until we figure out we can do everything up until that point safely. You know, and ultimately, our mission is to go out there and, and execute uh, flight demonstrations in front of the public. And if we're not doing it safely, we're not really uh, not doing it well. So, uh, boss, tell us a little bit about flying in formation at the individual level. There's nothing, as, as you know better than I, more rewarding than, than flying smoothly on somebody's wing when you have a really good flight lead. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you fly formation, and especially when you do it with four or six aircraft flying so closely together? You know, it's an interesting thing. And I'll tell you when I, and it's interesting you asked that question because when I got here, I, what, I don't think I really appreciate how we did it. Because ultimately the goal in the Blue Angels is not necessarily to fly six jets and do, you know, spectacular maneuvers individually. It's to fly six jets as one. And there's a, there's a mechanical, there's a physics element to that. And there's, there's a psychological element to that. How do we synchronize these six different people in a way that we can fly six jets as one? And a lot of that goes into how we, how we fly, right? We have everything that we do. And as a flight lead, everything I do uh, inside the jet is prefaced with a cadence. So I'll say a few words and that has a certain tempo to it. And the way I say those words, the volume I say them at will mean something to uh, all of my wingmen. And we have the we have to have the trust between each other to when I say a word like a little pull that I'm not going to pull back on that stick until I say the P and pull. And all six of us are going to do it at the same time because if we don't do that and we're close together, we're probably not going to like the results of that. Same thing with any turn, power addition, slowing down, speeding up, and you can just take that to the next level as the maneuvers get more and more complex. So it's a really neat thing once you once you do it well or for that moment you find yourself doing it well in the midst of a maneuver and you find that you really have synced up that entire team, that whole, that whole delta that we call the six-plane formation. It's a really neat feeling to be able to do that, but it's a it really goes down to that trust and that, you know, that that repetition of doing things over and over and over to where you know the people inside of that formation so well that uh, you ain't know exactly what that word means, when it's going to happen. And heck, on top of that, it also means, you know, when they're having a good day and a bad day, just by the way, uh, you see them when they walk in in the morning or, or how they sound on the radio. You can tell how somebody's doing uh, when you fly with them you know, up to 15, 16 times a week together, uh, you get a pretty good idea of how they're doing and how they're feeling the jet and where they're at. 
Well, Brian, you're probably too humble to say this, but you know, most of us watch that beautiful blue angel diamond going across the sky and say, oh, okay, that looks good. But they don't necessarily have an appreciation for how terribly important it is that you have a smooth flight lead that everybody can can uh, sync up on. So uh, pretty amazing. Absolutely. You know, one of the, the metrics I put out there is uh, a one degree angle of bank change is about four and a half inches of movement at the end of my, my wingtip. And when our closest sets, we get in upwards of 18 inches away. So if you move your wings, you know, a couple degrees, you might find yourself and they're at a slightly out of position. You could find yourself in a real tough spot real quick. So smoothness and consistency down to those very, very tight tolerances are something that we have to have uh, to have a safe demo. You know, you mentioned, and I and I understand this because being on a, a space crew, you get to know your crewmates really well. You you know, it's like like having another set of siblings, right? You just can read them so well. So, do you change the way you lead the team based on your read of how people might be feeling that day or how they might be approaching the day? Well, I think uh, certainly, certainly we do. And I think one of the things about the flight demonstration is much like one of the adages we use in naval aviation is there's no rank in the cockpit. And there's, you know, right is right. And if somebody's, you know, wrong, you could find yourself dead wrong very quickly, uh, airborne or just having a bad plan. So getting an idea of where people are at each and every day and then adjusting as required is something we do, you know, day to day. And in fact, inside of the demo could be maneuver by maneuver. You know, Mm -hmm. we we go out there and we have a game plan. We find that maybe we're not synchronized as well today. Maybe we'll go ahead and make those sets just a little bit further apart. Or maybe just there's enough turbulence that are out there or wind shifts that we just don't like what we're seeing. So we're going to have to make that shift based upon personal performance or environmentals. Do you have any modifications made to the Super Hornets that you're using? for you, the Blue Angels, or are they pretty similar to what's out in the fleet? We do have some Blue Angel modifications. Specifically, one of the most notable ones is that we have a smoke system and that uh, we can turn on that smoke on and off. And that is replaced, you know, where we'd have normally have a, uh, a gun inside the nose. That's, a, that's actually a smoke tank for us now. We also have a stick spring. And what that does is it basically helps dampen out any oscillations that we might put inside the aircraft by getting jostled around in turbulence uh, and all that. So we have a, a constant, almost 40 pounds forward stick pressure that we're holding against and when we're flying that aircraft. That's one of the more notable differences for us is that ends up to wear you out pretty good if you're flying that, especially when you first start flying these uh, aircraft, they kind of wear out your arm a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, people uh, maybe don't have an appreciation for that 40 pounds of pressure actually allows you to make finer corrections, right? It does. It yeah. does. And the way that we fly and the way that we fly it is is a little bit different as an example. Once I get off the air, once I get off the ground and into the air is the boss position, I can't touch my rudders because it would induce some kind of some yaw and some things that wingmen would want like to fly off. So I have my feet flat on the deck and I'm kind of hunched down kind of a pseudo fetal position, <laughs> anchored down and in, in kind of a semi flexed position the whole time to make, make sure that I can anchor down and hold a very smooth and steady stick. And our wingmen do something very similar. They use their rudders uh, to fly formation, but a very similar kind of stance inside of the cockpit to make sure that they're have great control over the stick and throttles and are not, are minimizing movement. You know, you bring up an interesting point. You know, I, I had to learn to fly T-38s backseat when, when I joined the astronaut corps, which was great fun because I never anticipated I'd get to do something like that. But I was surprised at the physicality involved in flying to, you know, to the points you just made. And, and you've, I found, you know, clenching different parts of my body, not even thinking about it. And just the, it's, it's not something people think about. And you guys are in that plane a lot. So that takes a wear and tear on you, I'd imagine. 
we are in, it, it's really more for us. I don't know if there's a wear and tear. There certainly is, but we have, you know, our G tolerance. We don't wear a, a G suit inside as, as the Blue Angels with, you know, that anti-G straining maneuver that we do to kind of keep force that blood back up into our heads so we don't have a G-induced loss of consciousness is absolutely critical for us. So we don't have that extra added layer of protection. So what we do is make sure that we get some extra training and really get in the weight room, some cardio, make sure we're in a top physical condition so that we can go out there and that anti-G straining maneuver to make sure that we can see clearly, think clearly throughout the entirety of the demo is absolutely critical. So that's one thing we do. We also every year go back into the centrifuge, uh, which, you know, as you guys are familiar with, and get swung around there for a, an entire day, which is just an absolute blast, kind of. <laughs> well, and that doesn't even mention the fact that your solos sometimes are pulling, what, up to minus four Gs in some of their maneuvers, I guess? They do. They they can go up to minus three. We've tried to eliminate some of the negative G uh, just to save our airframes because ultimately what it's about is we want zero impact on the fleet Navy or Navy uh, aircraft in the fleet. We don't want to wear these out any sooner than we uh, absolutely would have to. So uh, we're going to look to be good stewards of our aircraft. We look to minimize some of those those negative G profiles, but they certainly can pull some ne- or push some negative Gs in the cockpit and up to seven and a half Gs positive. Tell us a little bit about the rhythm of a season. How many shows do you do? And what's a typical week like for the team? That's a great question. And what we'll do is our Mondays are off, but we'll come in on a a Tuesday. We'll practice. uh, We'll brief up what the next uh, air show is going to look like after that practice. We'll practice again on Wednesday, get ready, load up everything so it's ready to go early on a Thursday morning. And then we go to our next show site. Our C-130 will get loaded up. I'll load up our crew of maintainers that are heading out and our support officers probably about five to six in the morning. They get there. The Delta, our six planes of F-18s get there about an hour afterwards. We go into our first flight of the day on show site, which is uh, called the Circles, where we get over, uh, head the field or the show site that we're at. We uh, take a look at our visual checkpoints. We land. We brief it up. Uh, we debrief it and then brief up our next flight, which is a practice. So on our third flight is our, is our first practice overhead of show site. Uh, and then we kind of wrap things up then. Usually we're done about uh, 1900 or, or 7 p.m. at night. We run back to our hotel rooms, grab a bite to eat, and then get ready to do things again. In a normal year, certainly COVID is precluding some of this. We would do commits, what we call them. And those are just engagements with our team members at high schools and hospitals to engage with that community to spread our message to them. After that, we have a Friday practice. We wrap it up with probably a dinner that night or one night to kind of relax a little bit. And then we do everything on our Saturday and, show, uh, and Sunday shows, which is a very similar schedule. We go out and we have our air show on Saturday. We have a commitment at that night for the local community. Typically, uh, we wake up Sunday, check out of our hotels, execute our air show on Sunday. We uh, get done with that. We uh, get ready to brief up our flight. We come back home to Pensacola. We stay in uh, our hangar in Pensacola till about 20 hundred. We debrief the flight of our last uh, air show demo and uh, on Sunday and go home and ha- get ready for our day off by doing our laundry and uh, buying some groceries and get ready to do it again for the next show season, next show side. And how many weeks in a row do you guys do this over the summer? We start our show season typically mid-March and it goes through probably the first week of November. I uh, usually average right around 33 air shows a year. And we found that probably the best way to, to do this is break that up a little bit just for the, the risk management consideration and, and the fatigue management uh, yeah. 
the factor is we break that up and every six to eight weeks we'll take a off week. And what that off week will entail is we'll just come back to Pensacola on that week and we'll practice locally that week and take the weekend off and then do it again. But uh, it's a pretty rigorous schedule once we get done with uh, El Centro and, and certainly El Centro, that that winter training regimen is pretty arduous out there as well. But one of the good things is, is that intense training regimen allows our team to not only bond, but uh, knock out and get, establish those skill sets and resilience that's so critical throughout an entire show season. Yeah, that is definitely pretty intense. And even I can imagine, you know, thinking about what's going on in a show, you know, thinking about you're in, you know, in the cockpit and you're in the middle of a show, you're leading a diamond that is flying unbelievably close to you. And I remember what, when we were doing formation flying in T-38, that was incredibly mentally demanding and so here you are coordinating an entire team. You've got a lot of data coming at you. You're in a high-speed aircraft. And what's going on in your head and what are you thinking? As the boss. Yeah. <laughs> As the boss, I would say that, you know, and I've flown quite a bit. And, and I'll tell you, from startup to shutdown, the, it is maximum intensity as far as focus. And I think uh, a lot of the former bosses would probably say that uh, as well. Is, is really in that kind of 40, 45 minutes it is 100% focus on the task at hand. And that sounds, you know, and, and you're basically dedicating all your brain power to that. And I, I don't know how else, how else to describe it other than it is that's all you're thinking about. And it is 100% focus and it's a proud, as intense as it, as it could be there. Now, things that, that I am thinking about is, is thinking about the environmental factors, whether it be how the air density could affect my turn radius, the winds, Typically, every show site, uh, it's still done outside looking at checkpoints, right? Because the we're thinking about uh, turns, that, you know, our angle of bank in terms of a degree or uh, the Gs that we're pulling in, ten in terms of a tenth of a G affecting our profile. So any nav aids we have uh, in the cockpit are just insufficient to have that level of precision. So what we do before each show site is study roughly 30, 30 checkpoints. We pick out 30 things on the ground that we use that kind of as a boss thinks about them, it's kind of connecting the dots as things that I'll, I'll use to reference and line up on and establish my profile uh, so that I can present the best formation as possible to the crowd. So you have kind of a three-dimensional picture of the whole airspace in your mind and you're flying sort of like dot to dot to dot almost. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think the most difficult maneuver is for either the diamond or the two solos as you guys work on these air shows? Shoot, I would say probably the Diamond 360, and that's just our Diamond Pass. It just looks like a left turn, but we're uh, we're in there, and the tolerances are so tight. We usually bring that one to our closest set, and when that Diamond comes around, uh, you'll see that uh, all fl you know flight controls are all overlapped. You'll see the the wingtips are very very close apart between our right and left wingmen. You'll have my canopy of my slot pilot be right underneath and kind of between those wingtips, and we are about a sandwich as close as you can get together as possible. And for us. It takes – that is almost like a max repetition uh, if you were in a weight room kind of effort. And everybody in there is what we'll call fulcrumed out. And what that means is basically you're almost a maximum flex to make sure that any jostling that uh, the environmentals may do to your aircraft does not affect how you put that input whatsoever. So once I lock in that angle of bank and that rate of descent and that throttle setting – it's almost like we're in a max flex at that point until we're out of that maneuver to make sure that nobody is moving uh, because, uh, you know, any any wingtip movement uh, could be a bad thing. 
Just just for our listeners' sake, when uh, and and please elaborate on this, but I know when I was practicing as a complete novice, mind you, doing formation flying just off a of T thirty eight, I was focused on the wingtip, and so your wing. Uh, aviators are focused on your plane and they're not focused on these three-dimensional um, sites that you're using to guide the team, right? Absolutely. And it's one of the coolest things about this team. And, I, you know, the demonstration is, is absolutely analogous to everything else that goes on in our team. We're a lean organization and my right wingman is looking at and focus on only things that a right wingman should be focused on, right? He's looking at my wingtip. He's looking at the alignment with my fuselage. He's making sure his wings are matched with mine. He's looking at the depth. And he's, you know, staring at the side of my side of my head as he's doing this and making sure that he's in the exact same position. You know, same thing with my left wingman, a different viewpoint and different mechanics is required. Each of their mechanics are actually slightly different just based upon how our, the, uh, the air, air flows interact. They actually have different mechanics and different rudder and, and stick inputs required for each of them. And our, uh, our airborne safety observer, if you were to call him that, our slot pilot is also out there flying off of my, uh, my aircraft, but he's also making sure that the wingtips from the right and left wingman don't get too close. So he's got a he's got a scan there too, where he's he's making sure that as they have slight deviations, if that you know, he's making sure their wingtips aren't getting too close, or he's not getting too close to their wingtip and and all that. So he's monitoring our formation, how we're how we are uh, flying together. Yes. Yeah, so uh, for our, so for our listeners, you guys are flying basically as one organism, where you are the brain. And everybody is just sort of, I don't want to say blindly, but focused on following where you're going. So your role is super important for the for the safety, really, of the whole group. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's uh, They're focused on there. And I think about it in terms of our, you know, we have a maneuver called the line abreast loop. And it's where we have five aircraft that are looking straight across. And all the wingmen are flying off me at that particular at that, in that maneuver, but their scan is over their shoulder. So all they're doing is they can just see over their shoulder and trying to line up the formation, both in depth and forward and aft movement. And this, that's a great example of what you're talking about. Uh, just like the Diamond 360 where, you know, uh, we can't, we, I can't get low, right. You know, it's, uh, too much at stake by doing that. So everybody's got a role. It's important. Their role is not to hit me. Uh, <laughs> my role is to make sure we don't hit the ground and, uh, fly a good profile. Right. So I would have guessed, boss, that for the diamond, that Blue Angel number four, if you is on the inside of an echelon, if you're rolling into him, that's probably a pretty tough formation flying challenge, right? Because you are the you're the axle, and he's at the end of the wheel, but he's having to do sort of negative G to stay in formation, right? It's a tough move. Yes, sir. That's a that's a difficult one. And our the start of what we've we've kind of tweaked that maneuver this year, so you can see it. We call it a changeover roll. Now we start out in the left echelon and we roll left, which means just as you're saying, the number four pilot has to push forward on the stick and then give some rudder to and power to make sure he can stay on the outside of that turn. And we're kind of turning about him. So it's amazing. So that's. It's a very difficult, and then on top of that, he's trying to maintain all of the aircraft in a straight line and, and kind of ma- maintain that position. So this year, we've we've upped the complications, I guess, a little bit. We've taken that what used to be just an echelon roll, and now we're going to start the first half of that maneuver in echelon. And as we approach inverted, our four pilot will tell them to go diamond, and they'll make a formation shift halfway through that roll while we continuously roll to back to our diamond formation so that we have it about with about 90 degrees left of that roll, we'll present a diamond to the uh, formation. So that's pretty oh, cool. Spectacular. 
You know, as a spectator, it seems like the most difficult move is when all six jets are together in the Fleur de Lis, and then you break apart vertically and then all come together from different directions at the show center. That looks pretty dynamic and scary as a as a someone watching the show. Is that is that difficult for you guys? Those are difficult in the sense that, you know, everybody's think of the way we brief it a lot of times in our in our formation is that everybody has to do their max effort to do their individual role to make sure that that synchronizes up. There's so many variables on a maneuver like the flirt or the loop break cross where everybody spreads up, does spreads out after a loop breaks out over center point and then does a half cube and eight and then tries to cross in a stacked formation right at center point on time on airspeed. That is a difficult one because all it takes is one person to be a little off that day and all of a sudden the, the stack doesn't look uh, doesn't look perfect. So very difficult and that's why that's one of the maneuvers that we integrate last into our show sequence as we go throughout winter training because we have to, it has all those elements of flying together in formation and then rejoining from that formation from a very dynamic maneuver. dynamic individual maneuvers that is as a reminder this episode of the adrenaline zone is brought to you by zoa energy zoa is designed to support healthy immunity while providing a boost of energy and hydration and you can always find out more on zoaenergy.com So it's not only uh, skilled formation flying, it's also a lot of timing involved that is not easy to do in that three-dimensional environment. So can you can you give our listeners a sense for how you're communicating during a show? I, if I remember correctly, you've got a, a frequency where you're talking to the diamond, but but you've also got the solos who have to communicate with each other. They're doing some very interesting things, you know, together. Can you give us a sense for how that all, that rhythm works? Absolutely. We really have kind of three entities, I would say, in any get in a show set. We have our ground support personnel and that's headed up by typically our maintenance officer who's watching those maneuvers, who's got safety observers that are down there communicating. He, in this case, uh, Lieutenant Brian Abe, he's got the ability to communicate in all frequencies. He probably communicates the least, but monitors the most frequencies. Uh, actually, airborne in the demo, we have a, a frequency that we use on the show line. So anytime that we find ourselves basically in for a maneuver and then leaving the air show or the aerobatic box basically in front of the crowd. That's a frequency, a common frequency that we use. We also have an individual frequency for just the diamond and we have an individual frequency that the solos use. And it's very important that we know we're transmitting on the right frequency at the right time and saying the right words. We have a script, but that script has differences and the differences in it are not necessarily the words, but the differences in the script that we use are the intonation, volume, the rate at which we say words. And that has, that's a way that we can pack more information into a phrase that means more to our wingman. Tell me, have you ever flown a perfect show? Would you consider you guys have ever flown a perfect show? There's so many variables involved that you've been explaining to us. No, I think it's it's not necessarily that we'd ever will fly a perfect show. I'm, I'm of a different mindset that you can achieve some level of protection, perfection. You know, I know the there's the relentless pursuit of, of perfection that we also dedicate ourselves to. But I think we do achieve moments. There will be a moment, and I'm talking, it might be a second or two. We're in the middle of a delta roll, and you can just feel it. 
we went off there. The aircraft is stable. I have some mirrors in the cockpit where I can just see the stability of the aircraft. I know I haven't, I know I haven't given a, I've given good inputs so that I've given a good platform for my wingman to, to show their true skills, the real skilled people in this is the wingman uh, to show off their, their capabilities. And for a moment, you can see that stasis or we can find ourselves rolling as one and, and it's addictive. You know what I mean? If you achieve it that second or two, I, I can still think about those moments that we've had and it's addictive and you constantly chase it. And throughout this team and whatever the role is, whether you're maintaining an aircraft, whether you're in our support, your logistics, whether you're working on the ground, public affairs, administration, or whether you're actually flying the demo, everybody has that mentality of waking up each and every day going, man, I'm going to chase perfection today. You know, I want to taste it. I want to get there. I want to, I want to dedicate myself to excellence. And it sounds like I'm, I'm speaking in platitudes. I know when I, I know when I say that. But when folks in this organization, we, we hire for those folks that no kid and wake up every day and say, you know what, I am glad to be here and I'm going to get after it today. And I'm going to do I'm, I'm going to give my absolute utmost to attain, you know, excellence. And maybe I can get to perfection if but for a moment, uh, whether it be in the dem- demonstration or their particular role inside of this organization, achieve perfection for that moment. Boss, Naval Aviation does a tremendous job of managing risk. But how about stress? Naval Aviation also talks about stress management. How, in a pretty high pressure job you've got, how do you handle that risk personally? Well, I think uh, like anything, like anybody else in their in their job, you find your battle rhythm, right? My core unit ultimately comes down to my family, uh, my beautiful wife and, and daughter, and I got another daughter on on the way here in two months, so I'm excited for that. But you got to have that core, and you got to have that uh, got to have that touchstone, which I believe starts at home, you know, and starts with your health, you know, both physically, mentally, and spiritually, whatever your belief structure is. And I kind of think those are the three cornerstones. Uh, I guess it would be a three three walled house if it's three cornerstones, but uh, but those are the three key key areas that a person needs to focus on, right? And whatever it is for for said individual, for me, it would be you know kind of the mental health is finding an outlet. You know, my I think like a lot of folks who are high performing folks that uh, are love what they do, are passionate about what they do, they need to find a way to detach themselves from it with something else. For me, it's reading. I might be listening to podcasts. Uh, might be listening to uh, books on tape. On top of that, I think my mental and physical health are, are inextricably linked to where I need to get to, I need to get some PT in every day. That's just something that I need to do. And on top of that, I need to make sure that I get some sleep. I know kid enforce myself, you know, I think a lot of folks and when they're really passionate about what they're doing, I end up cutting it short on sleep. This is a job where if you cut yourself short on sleep, you're going to find yourself on the backside of the power curve uh, real quick and not performing to your utmost. And then last but not least, the spiritual side or the family side of that, that's really where uh, that needs to be healthy as well. And for me, it's just being able to interact and spend that quality time when I can uh, with my family. And those three points are the ones that really allow me to walk into this organization, to walk walk into this hangar each and every day and to be able to give my utmost and perform at a level that hopefully allow my wingmen to show off those fantastic skill sets and talents that they have as well as the rest of the organization. So boss, as we start to wind down here a little bit, one of the cool things that not an awful lot of people get to see at an air show is is that the precision starts uh, when you all actually man up your airplanes. And it's quite a a neat thing to watch. But do you all have any other sort of team rituals either before or after you you do a show to kind of cement things? Or uh, is it just getting the jet and go? Oh, sure. No, no doubt about it. I would say that every day is filled with the same level, darn near the whole day is filled with a lot of those rituals and, and things that we do. We do things in a very, very specific Blue Angel way. No kidding as we, you know, 
Our maintainers have a certain battle rhythm that they do, how they show up, how they execute things, motivational things that they do to get themselves. If it's nothing more than when they're turning the jets in the morning, they say things in a certain way. And it sounds probably like chants or things that uh, are mantras that they might say and, and, and take part in uh, that is very similar to how we do the demonstration. Our day, you know, when we start off our brief, you know, no kidding, we have uh, rituals to start off and everybody shall be in the spaces, you know, one hour prior to our flight demonstration taking place. Ten minutes prior to it, everybody shall be in the briefing room. Five minutes prior, we shall be in our seat. One minute prior, there shall be absolute silence inside the briefing room prior to kicking it off. And everything we say is very scripted. It's reactive and dynamic to the different factors, but it, it is very scripted as we go through this brief. Inside of our brief, we actually uh, will cheer fly. Uh, we'll do a thing called pen flying where I'll talk through every the entire maneuver sequence together. In part, in during that pen flyer, we'll basically mission rehearse. And what we'll do is we'll take a time, we'll pick a couple maneuvers during the course of that, of that brief. We'll all uh, move our chairs back. We'll uh, get in a flight position to the most, most as we can represent it inside of our chair that we're sitting at that time, close our eyes, and visualize. Now go through all the communications and at the cadence that we'll do. Everybody will go through the throttle and stick positions, rudder movements that they would do during that maneuver. And then we'll uh, do that a couple times throughout our brief. And from that brief time all the way forward to when we walk out to the to sign for our jets, how we do things, where we put our covers on, where we put our, our, our sunglasses or how we call them, the shades, they're all synchronized from start to finish. I do have a quick question. Do you guys use simulators in any of your training? You know, we do. With the Super Hornet, one of the things that was was pretty cool about our transition to the Super Hornet is up in Pax River, we have a simulator that can now be modified to include putting on the stick spring uh, and some of the modifications that we use, whether in the aircraft, to go up and do some basic trainings. Now, some of that, a lot of the training you can't totally replicate because a lot of it, no kidding, is seat of the pants and you have right. to have kind of that feel for the jet. But one thing that's amazing is, and we talk about the safety aspect of it, is we can now go in there and we can put somebody flying on a formation that can record my flight profile for a maneuver. And let's take an example. We're up on a loop and I can, I can give somebody an engine failure mid-maneuver and we can actually practice some of those failures in a very realistic environment and go through rep, repetition after repetition to make sure that we can get it right in the worst case scenario and still have that uh, safe show for us. So that's one thing that's been really cool for us uh, to do this year with a Super Hornet. Yeah, you bring up you bring up a good point because we didn't talk about what happens if you're in the middle of a tight formation and you've got airplane problems. You know, that's absolutely that's significant. And it's one of those things that, much like in naval aviation, both Navy Marine Corps, each and every brief we talk about, whether it be something we call NATOPS, basically what's something about technical mm-hmm. about the aircraft we can talk about, or an emergency procedure. And then once a month, we'll even go down and we brief a scenario and put somebody on the spot and say, you know, they'll say, hey, boss, you just had an engine failure on in your bullseye nose high in the diamond dirty loop. What are you going to do? And they say, you got it. And then I go through the communications. I talk through the emergency procedures with our ground personnel who back us up with all the manuals and the emergency procedures. And I talk through our flight, all the the wingmen as well. And once we get done with that, we talk about how we could have done it better and more effective and more efficient. So, Brian, I thought you guys were so close that if you have an engine failure, the other guys are having an engine failure too. <laughs> uh, there are formations where it's a lot, lot less forgiving. We try, to, <laughs> we try to make sure that, you know, 
perfect world that we can, you know, is, is we ever achieve protection? Maybe not, but uh, in a perfect world, we find ourselves with a way out or uh, if we can recognize it early enough, we can make sure that everything is, uh, we can still safely get away and safely recover all of our aircraft uh, and be no factor to each other as well as the, uh, uh, the spectators. I guess that's why the maintenance team has to be top notch because you really don't want that happening at all. Absolutely. Boss, is there anything we should have asked you that we didn't ask? Well, shoot, I you covered know, an awful lot. No, shoot, we covered a lot of ground. Certainly, I tell you, I'm I'm, I'm super appreciative, and I'm I'm among uh, giants here as I'm as I'm talking to you. I'm and uh, absolutely honored and humbled to be able to talk to both of you uh, with absolutely fantastic careers and careers that are continuing on in different facets. So it is it is humbling and honored to be here uh, to talk to you and to spread the message of the Blue Angels. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, sir, we're here to represent over 800,000 active duty reserve and civilian support uh, personnel for the Navy and Marine Corps that are out there doing, doing the great work to protect the freedoms that we hold so dear each and every day. And one thing I I can't emphasize enough is that uh, uh, we're from the fleet and we're going back to the fleet. So again, I'm humbled now to lead this organization. I still pinch myself and go, why did they pick? Or, I can't believe they picked me, but you know what? I'll enjoy it while I'm here. And last but, last but not least, the, the way that I view my job as the boss, although we focused on some of the, the flight leader mechanics here stuff today or the commanding officer side of this job, I view that what I do in this team is nothing more than to to go out there and allow this team to do the things what it does, uh, does so well. You know, at most, I set the ceiling for performance on any flight demonstration or on the ground personnel, allow them to do the things that they can do so well and show their fine talents. So thanks again for having me here. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Well, let me tell you, it's been a real honor for us. I speak for Sandra in saying this and having the opportunity to talk to you. And, and congratulations again on having the dream job of every naval aviator. We we really look forward to seeing the air uh, sometime soon. You've got a great show scheduled this year. And thanks so much for spending time with our listeners today. You've really brought some fantastic insights that I think anybody watching the Blue Angels this year will, uh, who's had a chance to listen to this podcast, will really appreciate some of the nuances of, of what you all are doing out there. So thanks so much for what you do. That was Commander Brian Kesselring, who leads the Navy Blue Angels flight demonstration team. Many thanks to Zoa Energy, who sponsored this episode. Check them out at zoaenergy.com. Please join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode. If you like our show, be sure to follow us, tell your friends, and also write a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a suggestion for an adrenaline seeker we might want to interview, visit our website at theadrenalinezone.com.